The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, Chapel family, today we are landing ourselves in the beginning of a new um, three-series series. series. I don't know another way to put it. Um, This month, we're entitling this month of February, Savvy Faith. And yes, I chose that name because of my daughter. Um, And then in March, it's something like Silas. And then in April, the sermon series for April is called Beloved, because that is Jackson's um, meaning of his name, is Beloved, Loved by God. So today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 21 to 32. So if you want to start flipping there, um, and today, what I wanted us to begin to talk about is how to share the good news of Jesus in a way that's actually good news and not just annoying news or not just bullhorning toward people about Jesus. So um, with that being said, it's going to skew a little bit nerdy today. It's going to be a little bit more um, heady because of the passage that we're in, a very, very famous passage, um, Paul uh, on the, the Mars Hill, this great hub of thinking and cultural debate and dialogue. This is the story we are going to find ourselves in in Acts 17. So as you're flipping there, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the word today. Uh, Father, I love that we can come and sing to you as a family, that we can affirm that you are alive, that death has been defeated, and that we get to stand in your presence face to face one day, that one day pain, sorrow, death, sickness, cancer, brokenness of relationships, brokenness of our mind and loss, one day that will be no more. And God, I I look forward to those moments, and I love the tastes of them we get in this life. So I pray that as we talk about this topic today, how to share the good news, why to share the good news, that we would realize we're not doing this for notches on our belt. We're not doing this to grow an organization. We're doing this to reach out toward those who you are calling to be in your family forever. And this is a family thing. We are bringing people into the ultimate reunion, the ultimate party, which is with you in the new kingdom. And God, we look forward to that. So give us eyes to see today. Give us ears to hear your words today and compel and change our hearts in the way we view this topic of sharing the gospel, the good news of your son. In Jesus' name, we pray. All God's kids said, amen. Um, So there are a few different types of people. When I say something like evangelism, it might bring things to your mind, and and you're thinking, well, I'm I'm not the evangelism one. And I think large in part because we've had some bad experiences maybe with evangelists coming to us. For example, I've shared this before, but for me it's the most pertinent example. Um, There's been many different means and modes to share the good news of Jesus. And we're going to talk about what the good news exactly is in, in a moment here. But I need you to understand that you can be, there's the bullhorn guy. He's the guy that goes to the, the fairs and he goes to the places and he just bullhorns stuff at you. It's almost like someone's just throwing verbal rocks at you. And then you've got, um, you know, what I affectionately call the death threat evangelism. Those are the people who um, back in the 70s and 80s, they'd knock on your door. And their first question after introducing themselves was, where are you going to, do you know where you're going to go today if you die? Right? Do you guys remember that? If you don't, like, I've had this happen to me where people would, they'd say, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, and they say, do you know where you're going to go today if you die? And I thought, well, that's awfully threatening. I'm a large human being. Now, it's different where, where I grew up from here because um, in Southern California, you can ask people those sort of threatening questions, and, and we just get offended. <gasps> you know, it's, but here, people have firearms. Like, I dare someone to go door-to-door in Florida and have that be your first question. Do you know where you're going to go today if you die? Because there's going to be some little five foot six person who's going to pull out an AK-47 hidden in the garter bound, just and but you're dead. That's it. Now, 
uh, how we evangelize, how we share the good news. And evangelism comes from the word euangelion, which we've translated to the gospel. It just means good news. That's all it is, the good news of Jesus. So today I want to look at what is the gospel, how to share the gospel, and why we share the gospel. I think we know the general structure and shell of those things, but I, I really just first want to talk about what is the gospel. And this is going to be fast, but I'm going to read some quotes. If you want these quotes, I'm going to be posting them up on the Facebook through this week. They're from pastors and authors um, that I have enjoyed and have shaped me over the years. But first is Corinthians 15. This is the gospel in a nutshell. All of the truths about God at the core of what they are. Paul says, For I delivered to you uh, as first importance what I also received. Here's the good news. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel at the very core of core. Uh, Another way to think of it is this. Uh, The gospel is the news of our being saved through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into relationship with him. Then he restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life with him together forever. Or another way, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet in the very same moment, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. The gospel says that if you come to Jesus, it is by faith in him, even if you aren't good, aren't decent, aren't wonderful, if you are a pile of human waste, God loves you and has chosen you, and it's not about you, it's about him. It's not about how good you are, it's about how good he is. It's not not about um, all of the check boxes you can check, it's about the fact that he has checked all the boxes on your behalf, and all we do is receive through faith. This is the good news. And this is where Paul is going to enter in to a story. Now, this story is about Paul's intellectual engagement to share the good news of Jesus in a savvy way. And I chose the name Savvy for my daughter, and I really wasn't my first choice. It was my number two choice. But I okayed it. Um, Not that I had any okay say in the matter. Because I I wanted my daughter, when, when we found out we were having a girl, my prayers changed. For my boys, it was, I want them to be uh, certain things that I prayed for. God, make them strong and help them to love sacrificially and protect others. And then all of a sudden, I had this daughter, and now I'm going to have two daughters, and it's terrifying. And I begin to pray, and I didn't realize this would happen. I prayed differently for my daughters. The first things that came to my mind when I found out I was having a girl was, Lord, I pray that my daughter is cunning and shrewd and wise like a serpent and gentle as a bulldozer. I want my daughter to be strong. And I think part of it is because I'm, I'm not a, a female, so I know the landscape that males live in. I know the pressures that come toward the male side of, of our biological combination. But females, I look at the things that the girls are bombarded with from such a young age, and I, and I just thought, man, the, between the Instagram and the magazines and the articles and the pressures and the peer pressure that is immensely different for females than it is for, for men... I thought, I need my daughters to be cunning. I want them to see through the thick of fakeness that can envelop them. So that's why this is called savvy faith. And this is Paul being very savvy as he's going into the temple. 
And one last thing before we read this, I need you to understand that there are other ways for people to come to Jesus. It's not always an intellectual pursuit. And I have the prime example that I wanted to share because it's a huge win for the chapel. Um, I've been pinch hitting for middle schoolers because um, Edwin's been out of town. But, Ed, but Edwin's here today. He's hiding in the back with a mask on. Hey, Kathy, love you guys, miss you. Um, don't go near Kathy. She doesn't need your germs. Um, and, and do the same with my kids. Just say hi to them from a distance, okay? Um, but, but I've been pinch hitting for middle school. And this was supposed to be remix week this past Wednesday. And I thought... I, remix, you know, it's just not my thing. It's like karaoke with Jesus kind of stuff, and the, the kids sing, and it's cool, I guess, but I, instead I said, I'm, I'm scrapping it, and I forgot to announce it anyway, so that's part of why I scrapped it, and I called up someone and said, hey, can you help, can you come lead a few songs on, on your guitar for the youth, because we don't get to sing a lot as a youth group, and the high schoolers and the middle schoolers were all going to be together this Wednesday, and he said, sure, and then 15 minutes before, he texts a friend and said, hey, can you come sing with me? And the friend he texted is uh, the worship uh, leader over at Grace Methodist and then a drummer. So we had a full band for, for this little huddle of youth group right here in this room on Wednesday night. And it was unrehearsed, unpracticed. There was no message prepared. They sang a song and all of a sudden I felt something different happen. Like these like 35, 40 kids were singing in the same volume as you just heard. They were out singing the worship team. And then um, one of the, the high school leaders got up and, and they just said, look, is anyone hurting? Has anyone been hurting? Does anyone feel alone? And every one of the students raised their hand. And he said, look around. And they all looked around at each other. And I'm like, okay, this is like one of those God moments. I can feel it coming. I've done this enough time. I, I've been, I'm being pasteurized right now. And, um, and they sang. And as they're singing, all of a sudden, these kids who are acknowledging, like, we're together and we feel alone and hurt and broken. They're singing more songs. These people that are singing, they just, they're crying. And the students start crying. And then the song ends, the last song. And I tell the, the students and the leaders, I say, look, here's what's going to happen. We're not doing remix. I'm going to drag this cross out here. And if you need prayer, just come up to the student leaders, and they're going to pray for you. And, and these student leaders pour into the students' lives. And, uh, and I put on some soft music, and I had no message. I, I talked about how Jesus loves them. He died for them. And they can come to the cross and leave everything there and just come and get prayed for. And there was one and then two, and then they were just, the teenagers just started coming, and they were falling in tears, They're just crying out to God. And I'm sitting here like, I read a verse, and then I just walk around, and I'm looking at the teenagers, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And then I'd see someone alone by themselves, and teenagers, self-centered, us-centered, me-centered teenagers were going and praying around people they didn't even know. And I'm just thinking, this is amazing. Jesus, you're the best. <laughs> and, and the leaders are up here. The leaders are crying. The leaders are getting broken. Some of our leaders literally, um, this is going on for 30 minutes. The students are coming up. The students are praying for each other. The leader, at the end, two of the leaders were like, I just got to go. Like, I, I just need to go drive and sing or do something. I'm like, I feel you, man. You go. I'll clean all this mess up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not talking about you, Damon. And I'm, and I, and I, and and as this is happening, then I, come, I go out to check because I send some kids out. Hey, if you're done praying, just go to the lobby and let these kids connect with God. And I come back in after checking on the lobby kids because I didn't want to be a totally irresponsible pinch-hitting youth pastor. And there's a group of middle schoolers and high schoolers gathering around the cross right here, singing their own songs. And then I get a text later that night because I, I, I pinch-hit for the middle school. The high schoolers had brought some of their people I didn't know. And the high school leader said, hey, just so you know, um, we brought four new people tonight. Two of them, it was their first time in any church gathering. Like, they'd never been to a big church, youth group, nothing. And they, they gave their lives to Jesus tonight. And I was like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was pumped. There was no, like, specific sermon. There were no three points. 
Um, the kids, I, part of me is like, man, they're going to show up next week, and then you're going to be like, okay, let's all read. And they're going to be like, read? What a bait and switch. This is the worst, you know? Because uh, their experience with God is we come, we sing, we pray, we cry, we hug, we hold, we, we lift each other up. And now they're going to be like, oh, you guys are nerds. This is different than I thought. Anyway, I hope it goes well. I'm going to pray for them. But, but I'm saying all this to you because today it's going to be so heady, too brainy, and I don't want you to think that this is the only way to share the good news of Jesus. The Spirit of God will go where he wants, when he wants, how he wants, but the Spirit of God also recorded these types of stories so that we can understand that sharing the good news with Jesus is not simply a bullhorn activity. It's a, it's a movement and a moment where we catch what God is doing and we step into the lives of people with empathy, with deep and true caring for others, where it's not just about ourselves or our answers or we're right and they're wrong. It's about how can we love people where they are in the midst of whatever they're going through. So here we go. Paul, he's preaching the gospel. He's walking through Athens, this spiritual hub, and they, they invite him in to talk to this council that would determine before the gods. And he says this in verse 23 as he's walking up to go present this new thought, this new religious um, idea of Jesus being raised from the dead, he goes in and he says this to these people, these religious experts. For as I passed along, verse 23, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So, so here's Paul, walking along, he sees, you know, this is in Athens, so we're, we're talking Zeus, Aphrodite, Hera, these gods, and then the extracurricular gods, and then he sees that in this one area, this stall, there's to an unknown god, and that's because they didn't want to make a god mad. If they missed a god that might be powerful, they didn't want to leave him out, so they put to the unknown god, just in case that god came back and wanted to smite, and they could say, no, we, we knew you were somewhere, we had this unknown one. Paul's walking, and he's looking at their lives, looking at what they turn to to find significance, looking at what they turn to to find safety, and he says, they have an unknown God. I'm going to tell them who that God is. I'm going to step in and, and enter into their worldview. They already know there's a God that they might not know, and I want to tell them about him. Now, this is interesting because Paul is very, very observant. I believe that we as followers of Jesus Two things. We need to be where people are. Paul went to the Athenians. Paul went to each city, and he was present where the people were. He didn't say, we're all going to just gather in the churches. He did gather in the churches. He started there, and then he left the synagogues, and he went and taught people in the town squares. For too long, we have made all of this church thing we do about getting people into this building instead of getting people out of this building. I'd rather have us hosting uh, gatherings at Cool Beans, at restaurants, in parks, all around the community. I would rather have us be present where people are. Now, Paul was an expert people watcher. I, I, I love um, people watching. It's one of my favorite hobbies. Um, I like noticing what people are doing and um, trying to discern why people are doing it. I love reading uh, body language. At the last uh, service, uh, people were looking at me really funny because I told them how I approach people. Um, and so here's how I do it. And since you're in the front row, you're my guinea pig. So what I do is um, when I meet anybody, when I talk to you in there, and, and please, I'm not doing this to terrify you. I'm telling you this because I, the reason I want to engage people in their story and where they're at is because I want to help connect people to what I believe to be the ultimate source of life, which is Jesus. So it's helpful if we, when we walk into a room, 
we notice others. Paul looked at others and what they turned to. Paul engaged and was interested in what others were doing. Too often we think that the world revolves around us, but we need to empathize and step into the stories of others. So for example, um, when I talk to you, anybody, and this could be, um, and I can't turn it off now, so in case you're wondering, like this is on 24-7, I'm sure that those who live with me don't like it because I'm analyzing. So, So here's how it works. You talk to me, instantly I'm I'm just gauging your body language. Okay, um, how interested are they? What are they? How are they standing? And some of us know body language intuitively. So if I'm talking to you, for example, but I'm faced like this, and I'm doing like this leaning thing, that means I want to get away, and you're holding me against my will. Now, we know some people don't get that cue, right? Because we do it to some people, and they keep talking, and you literally are like scooting along like you've got a peg leg, and they're like, no, talk to me more. I'm like, body language, body language. Here we go. Clue it in, buddy. Um, but they don't get it. So I'm always watching the body language, and then I'm, I'm looking at the eyes, and I'll ask you um, these sort of um, test questions questions to set a a bar standard. So I'll say like, oh, how are you feeling today? Instead of how are you doing, I'll say, how are you feeling today? Because I want to see, okay, if they're looking this direction, then they're they're remembering an emotion. If they're looking this direction, they're fabricating emotion. So I'm getting sort of a baseline for their emotions with their eye movement, their body language, whether across their arms, their feet. Um, I I even was talking to a a high schooler this week who said, oh, Pastor Ryan, I got a really good question to ask you. Um, I want to know about this girl. I like this girl. Can you tell me about it? I'm like, look, Here's the deal, man. Don't use this for evil, but read her body language. So like when you're in a group, tell a joke. If she laughs and looks at you, that means she's concerned with what you think. And he's like, does that really work? I'm like, totally does. And you can abuse this forever, but if you do, I'll turn you over to the devil. And, um, and I didn't really tell him that. Um, I said, use it for good. But, but we do this, and you all do it now. Like some of you just laughed and you looked over. Like you want to see if your spouse laughed. Was that funny? Do I get your approval? I want to be on the same page as you. So I'm, I'm always reading people, listening to people, trying to hear their stories. And some of you are like, I'm, I'm going to look straight at you. That's what happened at the end of last service. Everyone came up to me to talk, and they were like, hey, Pastor Ryan. Because <sighs> they were terrified. I'm like, look, I don't mind if you lie to me chronically. I'll still love you the same. Um, so just be yourself. Because Paul, and the reason I do it isn't to identify for negative purposes. It's so that I can come alongside you with with where you're at because in our culture we're addicted to putting up walls but there are cues that we all have that help us see through the walls if we're willing to stop slow down and care about someone long enough to think about it and um and it and it works and it's amazing i went to dunkin donuts recently with my boys we rode our bikes to a dunkin donuts it was like a long ride for us and um and the lady at the counter said, hey, are you, you know, are you a military? I'm like, no, do I look like a military? Like, is this the look of military? Uh, you know, I don't know what they do. I'm never shaven. I have long hair. And I said, no, no, are you a cop? And she kept asking me. And I said, what, what do you want to know? Like, I'm a pastor. And she goes, oh, then I'll give you our discount for sure. And I'm like, hey, that's a win. Can I use that next time? And, uh, and she said, no. But, but, then, um, but then she leaned over to this girl and she said, hey, pastor, you could pray for her grandma. She's in the hospital right now. And I was like, I got you. I'll pray for you. And, and she said, thank you. I said, no, no, like right now we're going to pray at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> you know, um, you, you've never seen anything so scary as like a, a grown man reaching across the table like, I'm going to pray for you. But so I prayed for them, and I, I noticed that she had a lot of pain. That's why I prayed for her because when she said my grandma's in the hospital, she was tearing up. And I, I'm like, I'm gonna, I want to pray for her to comfort her, pray for the grandmother. And then what I did was I, I said, I'm going to go back to Dunkin' Donuts for Jesus not for addiction to donuts and coffee, until I see her again. So just kept going back. Just kept going. And I saw her one day. And I said, hey, how's your grandma doing? This is a couple weeks later. And she goes, she's doing so great. She got out of the hospital like right after you prayed for her. And, and she's doing really great. Thank you so much. And now there's a couple of them at this Dunkin' Donuts that just call me the pasta. And 
All I do is pray for one person. But, but now, because I cared enough about her and her grandmother, there are a few people there that will ask me to pray for them. Now, it's not anything that I did. I literally just wanted to know more about their life and what they're going through and stepping into the way that they're viewing pain. Paul is stepping into the way these people are viewing religion. And he's not coming at it with some weird Christianese, super sneaky tactic because now I can lead another person to Jesus. It's about how well we can love people, share the good news of God with them, and let God lead them to himself. There is no notches on anyone's belt. If there were, um, I would be so frustrated because half of the time as a pastor, you get the privilege of starting relationships with someone toward Jesus. And then like three months later, a year later, two years later, that person comes to know Jesus, but it was like their neighbor's kid that led them to Jesus. And you're like, I put in all this hard work and all this talking and discussion and you get to lead them. No, it's not. It's about how well we love people and share the good news with them. And, and we have to be observant because if we're not, what we do is we fly right by the stories and we're trying to put a Jesus band-aid on their life in a way that doesn't actually apply. Let me illustrate. Um, the Bible story has four big themes. Creation, that's origins, how we got here, who God is, who we are. Fall, that's the sin, where things broke. Redemption, that's what saves us from the problem of the fall. And then restoration, that's the new heavens, new earth. All of us live in the same type of story arc. We just don't call it creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are Bible nerd words. We, we would say something like identity, problems, solutions, and what's your perfect world. And, and we all live in this arc. And if you want to know what, what someone is struggling with their problem, listen to what they complain about the most. And then all of a sudden, you'll begin to discern what they think is broken in their life. It could be something like finances, anxiety, relationships. It could be something like politics. Whatever it is, listen to what they complain about and listen to what they're looking to to save them, what their solution for their problem is. And I'm constantly doing this to all of you all the time, and not in a bad way, but because I believe that the true depth and the, the grittiness of the Jesus story meets our needs far more than other things that we would look to to be solutions. For example, anxiety. Anxious people, they're afraid, they're worried all the time. We know someone that's anxious or we are that person. So the problem is with an anxious person is that they're looking to something temporary to solve their problems. They're looking to maybe more money. They're looking to maybe a better marriage or a marriage class or a book that will finally change and solve their problem. Instead of looking to the deeper issues of what are they turning to in the core of their being to find security. Because I'll tell you what, I've been at the bottom enough now to know that no matter what I have or don't have, I have Jesus, and he has me. And all of a sudden, when I have much, I still have Jesus. And when I have little, guess what I still have? Jesus. So my anxiety levels are tending to be very low. It's this way with every single thing, but, but I want us to begin now to press into the story. So we've got to observe, we've got to pay attention to where people are, Look at the stories that are going on. Look at the eyes of the people you're talking to. Be observant. And then verse 24, Paul wants to answer them about who the unknown God is. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor has he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The God of creation doesn't need anything from us. He made everything, and he wants to give you life. And Jesus uh, goes uh, above and beyond. He says he wants to give you life and life abundantly. Abundant life does not mean more stuff in your life. It means more of God in your life. Abundant life does not mean you get all the solutions that you think will fix your problems. Abundant life is when God says, here's all the problems, and here's the things weighing you down and tearing you up, 
And here's where Jesus begins to meet these needs in tangible, real ways. An idol. As Paul's looking, idol, we have idols everywhere. Now, we don't have idols like they had idols. The few of us might. I remember when I was growing up, um, because in Filipino culture, for those of you who don't know Filipinos, it's kind of like Asian people might, went to on vacation to these islands. And Spanish people vacationed on the same islands, and they made babies. And those babies are the ancestors of me and Gia. Um, they're there. And uh, so we have Chinese descent, so there's a lot of Buddhism. And then you have Spanish descent, which is a lot of Catholic, which is why growing up in my grandma's house, there was this big, beautiful jade Buddha, one of those big, fat Buddha dolls. And it was so cool, right there in the living room, living room sitting area. And right above it was this beautiful picture of the Last Supper done with bamboo, and the light kind of came to Jesus. And as a kid, it didn't make sense to me. Uh, I just thought, this is weird, like, Buddha, Jesus, then I became a follower of Jesus, and I was like, well, at least Jesus is above Buddha, like, that makes sense, you know? Um, and, and what we do, though, is that we don't acknowledge that we have idols in our life because we just don't have the little statues. However, I believe we have the same idols that they had back then. We have the same gods that we serve. We just don't call them Zeus and Hera and Ares. But let me frame it in a different way. Zeus was the most powerful god. He was all about power and control. So we don't call them the god of Zeus. We call these people control freaks, right? All of a sudden, someone's like, "Uh uh-oh. Wait, do I worship Zeus? If you long for power and control and you use fear to direct people and to manipulate people, absolutely. You are giving your life to the principles of the God of Zeus. You just don't call him Zeus and you don't throw lightning bolts. Some of us maybe look at the goddess of Hera. She was Zeus's wife and she looked to her marriage and to, to marriage to satisfy everything that she had. Some of us put so much hope in our spouse being a type of person that when they let us down, our life crumbles. Or maybe this one will relate more. The God of Ares, the God of war, he is the God who turned to anger and wrath when he didn't get his way. We call these people angry. These people, these are people that rage. These are the people that when something happens in your life, the way you deal with it is by escalating your voice and getting angry toward the person or thing. Now, we don't say, I'm worshiping the God of Ares. But for sure, we are turning to his tactics to control our life and give us some semblance of security. We don't have to turn to anger because there's someone, a being, who died for us, who solved the problems that we are angry at, and we can turn to him and say, God, I am so angry right now, but I'm not going to direct my anger toward them because they are going through their own pain and journey and story. Instead, I can thank you that you died for the anger that's building up in me, and I can trust that you're going to work good in this situation. You don't have to be in total power and control because we can acknowledge that Jesus is the person who holds everything under his domain. There's not a sparrow that falls from a branch. There's not a whale going across the Atlantic. There's not a galaxy hurtling through the universe that God does not have his hand upon. So we can trust God. You are in control. I don't need to worry that my checking account is this many dollars short. I can trust that you will provide as you see fit for my faith in you. We don't have to... Look to the goddess of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of beauty, right? Um, for those of you, um, you may not all get this joke, but I've relabeled Aphrodite the goddess of Instagram models, okay? Be- because beauty is the, the ultimate thing with Aphrodite, and-, and it was all about, you know, how beautiful you can be. And don't get me wrong, you guys, this is the moneymaker. If you go to my Instagram, you'll find zero pictures of duck faces. But I know if I go on yours, I will. And I get it. I kind of get it. I'm not beautiful as a person, but my wife is stone cold smoking. So, um, so I know what it's like to be near beauty all the time. 
And it's, it's one of those things where people can rely on their beauty, but beauty fades. If, if you learn anything in your 30s and 40s, it's that gravity wins. <laughs> it's that Botox can only go so far. And, and I'm not saying, like, don't get Botox, but I'm saying just know that when you get Botox, what you're looking to Botox for is a, is a slight piece of redemption. You, you're trying to redeem the wrinkles upon your face in a way that God will one day fully redeem them. And I understand why your heart wants that, because our body was wired to be without sin. Sin is death of all things, biology, relationships. Sin is stealing and destruction of all things. So we long in the heart of hearts to be without sin because we are made in the image of God. But we've let sin in, and we all try to find these other things to stop our sin. We turn to our beauty. We turn to power. We turn to anger. Or maybe one more God, just for the fun of it, Dionysus. He was the god of wine in the Greek culture. I've renamed him the god of suburbia and soccer moms. Too close to the heart, guys? Sorry. We all like wine here. I've never met a culture like suburban USA that is obsessed with wine. It is weird. It's weird that people just want to drink about wine, joke about wine all the time. But I I don't mind it. And many of you know this because um, you post things about wine and the, the way that you post, I read that the same way that I read you. I think, okay, they're turning to wine after a hard day. I've done it. But I know here's what they're doing. They're turning to Dionysus because they think that if they go to Dionysus, if they go to wine, it will relieve some of what is going on in their life that day. It will solve one of their problems. I want to enter in and begin to show us all, and I want you to learn how to do this, how to show us where these things never deliver on the promises. Every idol Every one of these things, wine, beauty, power, anger, they promise, they they say, we're going to deliver this to you. They make promises, but they cannot keep them. Anger never delivers a healthy relationship. Yet, all of us know who have been married that at some point or another, you've been angry at your spouse. We all know in our brain that when I get angry, it doesn't solve anything. You can, if you don't believe me, just think about the last times you've been angry at your spouse or your children. It rarely solves anything except for temporary control. We know this, yet we still return to it because that God is lodged in our life. And Jesus says that those idols, they steal, they kill, they destroy. That's what those things do. They promise that they'll give you control and power. They promise that they'll give you safety and security, but they don't. The only one that does that is when you can replace these false idols with a loving Savior who died not only for you, but for the person you're talking to. So this is what Paul is wanting to get us toward this understanding that as we look at people's lives, see what they're living for, we enter into their story in an authentic, genuine way and actually care about them so that we can speak life into them. Now, and let's go on in verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live all over the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul says, God made us, and we are spread out, and in creation we can see God's fingerprints on everything, and he is close to all of us. He's pressing in. Now, I need you to understand something here. Um, We, I believe, as a culture, have gone too quickly by nature. We have gone too quickly past what is called the general revelation of God throughout creation. We drive fast, we listen loud, and we rarely stop to think, There's a sunrise and a sunset. There's a breeze that is speaking something to me. Because if the spirit is wind, every time I feel wind, I should think of the spirit. 
If we have new mercies every morning, then my first thought when I see a sunrise, for those of you who sunrise, should be, I cannot believe that God would love me again today. Paul wants us to understand that if we open our eyes wide enough, we can begin to see God all around us. We can begin to see God in the way that we move, in the way that we think, in the way that the wind blows, in the way that the birds fly. That's the reason why the Bible uses language like mounting up on wings like eagles, so that when we see an eagle, we think of God. It's, it's the reason why we, we think about new mercies every morning. It's a way, reason why God says meditate on God's word, so that when we see someone meditating or thinking, we're drawn into that. Now, here's where it gets fun for, for nerdy people like me. It's weird and cool to think that God has you where you are, when you are, right now. Like, you could have been born in 1100 A.D. Mongolia. You'd be a different human being. You'd be a horse-riding tyrant. But God put you in 2018. You made it. Suburbia, Tampa, Florida. Congratulations. We have great schools. You've got mostly okay children. You have income that can get you food and clean water. Not one of you today drank water and thought, I wonder if I'm going to get dysentery today. We live in an incredible time. We also live in a time where people have enough distractions to be distracted away from thinking about God forever. I've been recently um, jumping into social media because I want to be present, like Paul is present, and I thought, like, well, teenagers, they're not even present in their own brain anymore. They're not, if you look around at teenagers nowadays, they're not here in their body. They're living somewhere in a different world far away called Snapchat or Instagram. And as soon as you parents get on those worlds, they're going to leave those worlds because your coming into their world signifies this world is over and doomed. So then they go to the next one. But I've been trying to like enter into their world because I'm doing this youth thing. So I'm like, okay, look, if you're not going to pay attention to me only one hour a week, like that's not enough Jesus. I've seen how you guys live. So I've been Snapchatting. Okay? It's going up on my snap. Bam. 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 Now, why do I do that? Because these kids are in their world, and in their world, they're being bombarded by Aphrodite. They're being bombarded by Dionysus. They're being bombarded by all these other gods. And if I can bring a glimpse of Jesus into the midst of where their world is, it begins to change things. Here's how I know this is true. I, um, I'm a pastor. Like, I get mail that says, Reverend Ryan Tyrona. Reverend, they don't know me. Um, but when I walk into a room, it changes people. Sometimes when I walk near people, they tense up like they're getting heartburn and fear. They, they're like, oh, if he gets too close, lightning may strike. And I know not, if you've been here for a while, I know you don't feel that way. And here's how I know that. Because um, if you're new, um, I'm, I'm a pastor and I get that. I, I love God. I pursue God and I pursue being holy and living for him. But on the same token, if you come near me and, and you bring something, a choice word, whatever it is, I'm not, I'm not there with my Bible ready to backhand you. And neither, neither should any of us. Instead, I, I want to enter into your story. But, but just, like, just like when people enter in, when I enter in, people change. I'm, like on, I'm all over Snapchat right now. And Instagram stories, I'm like, hey, Jesus, hey, read this Bible verse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know these kids are scrolling through. And they're saying, duck face abdominal muscles, terrible clothing. And then it's this goofy guy that's like, don't forget about Jesus. And that changes us. 
I want us to be present and point to something that matters in life, but I don't want us to do it in the way what I'm going to call this the Jesus juke. It's a term that's been long used in Christian circles, and it's a bad term, okay? Um, Paul enters in where people are. He sees that they have an unknown God. He says, I want to tell you about that God. And then he says, it's also like these things you see in nature. Paul ties it into things that his audience cares about. A Jesus juke is when you bring Jesus into the situation and nobody was talking about him, okay? So it's like spiritual whiplash. Let me give you an example. It's like when somebody says, oh man, I'm so starving. Can we go here to get some food? And you say something dumb like, Man does not live on bread alone, but everything that proceedeth out of the mouth of Godeth. <laughs> Do you feel what I'm saying? Are you feel, it's, it's spiritual whiplash. Like, we weren't talking about Jesus. You don't need to super spiritualize everything. Or, for example, today, it's a big day for some of you. Um, Patriots fans? Anybody? Patriots fans? Yeah, I'm proud that you guys can admit that. Eagles fans? Okay, now let me ask a real question. How many of you are actual... Eagles fans, are, are, do we have any real Eagles fans? Or are you all new Eagles fans? You're an actual Eagles fan. Okay. So I was rooting for the Eagles, but then I was like to the Patriots because one of my Steelers went to the Patriots. And the Eagles fans, no offense, they're the worst. They're the city of brotherly shove. And I'm like, I just don't like Eagles fans. If they win, they're going to be like all angry and probably riot because Eagles fans. Um, so I keep going back and forth. Patriots, Eagles, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But, but as I was, I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, here... Here's a prime example. Like today, pastors all over are going to be like, well, you know, you Super Bowls here, and you should be more excited about Jesus than the Super Bowl, which is true. Like, Jesus is definitely more exciting. But if I said something like that, like, are you as excited to be here as you are to watch a Super Bowl later? What am I using to change your heart? I'm using guilt and shame. So, guilt and shame are sinful things. Do you think if using a sinful thing to change a sinful behavior, do you think that's going to work? Let me put it another way. Do you think you can clean a muddy pig in a mud bath? No. You can't use sin to get rid of sin. You can use sin to trade sin. So instead, I don't want to say things like that. I want to say, I want to see who can eat the most amount of guacamole in Jesus' name today. I want to see if you can defeat my record of guacamole consumption for Jesus during the Super Bowl. Now you're thinking, oh, that's funny. But here's here's where we are in our culture Millions of people, over 100 million people are going to watch this game today. We can enter in, and we could say, I'm, I'm here to have fun. I'm here to hang out. My pastor challenged me to eat guacamole right up to the point of gluttony and then stop. And I'm going to not mock people for feeling weird about what they're drinking in front of me. It's, it's always, for me, the most uh, incredible thing when, when I do something that's outside of the Christian box and how much they want to listen at that point. And by Christian box, I don't mean outside of the Bible. I mean these weird things we've set up as to what a Christian is. And and in my experience, um, 99.99% of the people who don't attend a church gathering, and many, many within church gatherings, we have a false representation of what it means to be a Jesus follower. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that someone perfect chose you because you're a train wreck. That's what it means at the core of Christianity, that we turn to Jesus constantly away from our idols because we recognize how prone we are to turn to something else, and we need a Savior. This is what Christianity is. Yet, so often, we try to clean ourselves up and we Jesus-juke people. We try to turn conversations weirdly to Jesus that don't even belong there. We don't actually listen to people and care enough about them to know their story. 
Because if I'm going to tell someone about Jesus, it makes a radical difference if I know their story, if I know what they're going through. This is why I end every one of my conversations. After I've done the conversation and we've talked and shared, I ask, hey, how can I pray for you? Because what someone asks you to pray for after you build a relationship with them tells you a lot about what's worrying them. And it, it shapes the way that you can connect with them and relate to them. And also, it's a good way to get out of a conversation when you're done. So, like, if you ever hear me say that, hey, how can I pray for you today? It means get out of my house. Um, but I love you. That's what it means. But when you pray for people, it's interesting because it, it makes a big difference to somebody when they know you care. It makes a huge difference. So um, I, I didn't talk to anyone before this, but when I, when I ask you, how's your family doing? How's your daughter doing? You know, he knows that I care. And when we talk about specifics about what's going on in his life, he knows that I care. When I go around praying for people in my car, I, I stop near neighborhoods where I know people live, and I just pray for those families. And it's a lot easier when people have said, here's what I'm going through, or when I've listened or watched what they're talking about. It's a lot easier when someone says, I'm, I'm really scared. I'm having back surgery this, this next Tuesday. It's, it's scary. I get that. And even if they don't say scared, their body language says, I'm scared, because it's scary. And all of a sudden, when we enter into people's stories, it's, it's more likely that we'll be real people and not say corny things. Because in the church, we're addicted to pat answers that cover things. We're addicted to saying something like this. When someone says, I'm having a really hard time, what do we say? We say, have you read your Bible? Have you prayed? Which are both good things. But saying that without actually walking alongside someone, it's the equivalent of, of someone just, like, they come to you and say, hey, I'm gushing blood, and we put a bandit in their toe, and they're gashed across their torso. We don't know where the pain is unless we enter in. Paul entered in, and then he started to point out, through the language that these people were using, where the things they were looking to didn't actually fulfill them in the way they thought they would. We need to enter into the language of people where they're at instead of creating our own language. Do you know that people call it Christianese? Did you know that only Christians call it Christianese? So even the word Christianese is a language for a fake Christian language. If you want to go confuse somebody, go tell somebody at a bar that they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. You'll get weird responses. You'll go over to Tampa and say that to a hipster bar, and they'll be like, dude, don't kill lambs. You go to Lithia and say that, they'll be like, I just killed a lamb this morning. Bad redneck joke again. Uh, you can sing a song like there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You say that in a Christian community, you're like, oh, yes, Emmanuel is God with us, and the blood that we're saved by is his blood. Try to go say that in a Hispanic community where their second cousin is Emmanuel. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Like we, we just throw these big Jesus words out and we expect people to come to the church in droves. We, we don't pay attention to people's stories to understand what they know and don't know. We do it with our kids. Like you use, you use the language with your kids that's usually generally right above the curve of where they are. So that way they grow into adult language. So you don't talk to your kids. And I'll tell some of my kids, like, hey, don't talk like a baby. So get out the baby accent. We're talking like humans. And you always try to teach them the next, that's what we do. But for some reason, when we talk to people that are outside the church, and by that I mean they don't come through these walls, we, we use this weird language. And I've heard it happen. I hear people who are so normal. We could talk about football and this and that, and then all of a sudden an evangelism conversation comes in, 
And we've just been saying like, oh man, that play was the worst. And there may be some like second tier cuss words in there. And then all of a sudden their friend is like, oh wait, there's a Jesus thing here. And you hear someone go from like offsides, this, that, hate that team. And then you turn over like, oh man, Jesus loves everyone, brother. Oh, can you believe that he loves us so much that we're, you know, we're living in the Super Bowl of our life right now and Jesus is our quarterback. If you guys ever say anything like that, I will disown you and send you to another church. Jesus is not our quarterback. He is the stadium. He is the playbook. He is the head coach, every coach, and he's all the players. We're in the audience like, hey, 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 That's us. We long so, so much, I think, to share the good news, but we have all of these fears. Here, here's what I want to get to. At the core of it all, know the gospel, share the good news of Jesus in a way that is actually winsome and meets people where they are. We don't need to be corny. We don't need to wear shirts that say weird Jesus things. Although now there's a a little segment of the youth group that is getting these shirts because I've mocked them from the pulpit enough. They're having custom shirts made that say things, and they're finding shirts. One kid came to youth group because I've mocked it so much. uh, They got a shirt made that says, y'all need Jesus. I'm like, you know, that's right. You need Jesus with that shirt on. And, um, And the reason why is because I've never met somebody who says, you know what, I was just walking down the mall one day, and I saw this teenager with a shirt that said, y'all need Jesus, and I was like, I'm giving my life to the Lord and Savior in the blood of Emmanuel right now. Because A, they don't know half of those words. B, we don't come to Jesus like that. The only thing that a Christian bumper sticker has done for me has made me mad in the last week. Because I was walking my kids to school in my neighborhood, which is one loop. And someone came flying. And when people fly in my neighborhood, I got kids. There's a lot of kids around our neighborhood. I usually step out in the middle of the street because I'm big, and I'll take a shot. And I put my hand out. I just go, boom. So I did that this past week. I put my hand out in the morning. And I was like, I'm going to stop this van. And I did it. And we were only one loop in my neighborhood, so we can literally know everybody. So I stop, and they slow down, and they give me angry face. And I'm like, get out your car. No, I didn't say that. Um, but they went around me, and then it just had a, a bumper sticker for a church on the back. And I was like, I'm glad you're going there. They better be preaching the gospel there because you need Jesus. That's why I don't give you guys bumper stickers that say the chapel. Because <laughs> I know the pastor of their church, and I was going to call him up and be like, dude, get your directory out. This is the street. You tell me who they are. I'm egging their house tomorrow in Jesus' name. <laughs> I wouldn't really egg their house. But are, but are we meeting people where they're at? Are we talking to them and caring enough about their stories? This week I had an amazing thing happen. And I, I had the opportunity to speak life into a situation. And here's what it was. Um, my son got in one of his first fights. <sighs> There's nothing weirder as a dad when your son punches a kid for the first time. And if, uh, if, you're, if you can't tell, I was super proud of him. Because I've told him his whole life, God made you big to protect other people. And I know, I know it's hard. I know that sometimes you don't want to protect people. But there was an altercation at our park. I went down. My son is part of, like, the gang, you know, these little neighborhood gangs. Uh, and by gangs, I mean, like, they, like, play Minecraft together usually. And, uh, but one kid got mad, middle schooler, was choking another kid. And, uh, and Jackson, I've instilled it in his head. God made you protect and love, protect and love. Even if it's a kid you don't like, protect and love. And, uh, and he went up and he tried to stop the kid from choking because choking is bad. 
and the, the kid that was choking was a middle schooler, bigger kid, and he kind of just like, poof, donkey kicked him, I guess, or something. So Jackson came back after the donkey kick and just, pow, on this big middle schooler. The middle schooler let go of the choke and then threw Jackson like a rag doll. And I, got, and, that, and I just happened to be walking up as it's all ending. So I see a kid like, <gasps> I see Jackson crying, ah, and the middle schooler had long taken off. So in that moment, I thought, okay, I could be a dad or a pastor. I, I probably can't be both right now. And there were some teenagers there that had watched this whole thing happen. So I'm talking to all of them. I'm like, I'm going to be a pastor today. So I had, first I had to say, like, okay, Jackson, don't punch people unless you're ready to get thrown like a rag doll. And then I had to say, look, we're, we're going to talk about this today. Why did we do it? What did we think it would solve? And at the end of the conversation, as I'm walking around to different kids' houses and I'm having that meeting with parents, all of us parents know that awkward meeting, right? Ding dong. And you, you think, like in my head, I'm prejudging. If they're kids like this, they're kid, apples and trees, that's how it works, you know? Um, but then I thought apples and trees, my kid just punched somebody. So I'm, I'm talking to the parents. And then at the end of it all, I realized I just had an amazing opportunity to step into people's lives to engage with other parents about parenting, to sit down with kids, these little minions the size of Oompa and talk about why we care for each other and why kindness matters. And, and then it comes all the way back to the way that God cares for us. And then the very next day, uh, the kid that Jackson punched came over to our house to play. I thought, this is amazing. And if you're wondering, it wasn't your kid, by the way. Um, it was amazing. And I thought, this, this is the gospel. And then I, now I get to tell Jackson about it and say, dude, look at how amazing this is. When you put forgiveness and love ahead of everything else, you, you can see God wash away your mistakes and bring you into a new relationship. Because like many of you know, like I know and my son is learning, you're friends with nobody like you are with someone that you've traded blows with. Those are the high school days. When you, or you get in that big rip-roaring argument with your spouse. All of a sudden when you make up, there's a reason why you make up can't say it. There's littles in the room. But step into the lives of people. Care for them deeply. Remember that God is not something we create or control. He is the being who is hovering the earth looking for those to save. This is the God we serve. This is the God we are called to fill every street with his love now. And that's what I would encourage you to do. As you go out, begin to Think about your story. And today on the guest services, I want you to pick up, there's 50 of them, there's probably less because first service took some. There's a little worksheet on how to share your Jesus-centered story. I strongly encourage you to do that. I strongly encourage you to pick it up and begin to think about how your story fits into God's grand story. And as you do that, you'll realize this is how I can share the good news of Jesus without being a Christian bullhorner. And it will be very good for you. So let's pray and then I'll invite up uh, Mr. Skip to share. Father, I thank you for... Your word, I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the way that you change us and mold us. God, I pray that you would help us to share our faith in a way that is winsome and savvy and cunning and kind and loving and full of forgiveness and grace and mercy. That we would not be Jesus-juking people, that we would not put corny Christian slogans on things, but that we would step into people where they are and meet them there because they are made and loved as your image bearers. God, I thank you for this family. Help us to fill every street this week with the love of Jesus. In his name, amen.